Yo, this hot, this the spot, there it is, pod.com. We're interviewing the best comedians, so tune in quick and get your ears receiving them. We're talking about life and life to stream right to you from the microphone right to your home, dude. Side note, this might get embarrassing, but no, don't sweat, yo, because there it is. Welcome to the There It Is Podcast, a comedy podcast to help you find your inspiration. I'm your host, Jason Farr. Let's do this. Great episode today. It's with Emmy winner and last week tonight writer Greg Iwinski. But first, we have a new Fest Submission blog up on the website, thereitispod.com. So go check that out if you are itching to submit to a comedy festival, especially specifically in the month of March, because that's all the data we have so far. Also, girlfriend of the show, Justina and I are celebrating five years in New York City. We moved here together five years ago today. And this interview with Greg reminded me to be present and appreciate where you're at in your journey It's really special to be here and at the Magnet and surrounded by so many talented and wonderful people. We've made such great friends out of these wonderful people. And I've learned so much, too, and I'm I'm ready to get back at it. My improv team, Sweetheart, actually performed last Saturday. We had a great show. It was great to be back. Go to magnettheater.com to find show and class information. Speaking of a fun time... Did you see Conan on SNL? Oh gosh, what a damn delight that was seeing him on SNL again. Go check that out. (laughs) I'm pushing you to my website for this podcast and to the Magnet Theater website and also to SNL. Please go check that out. (laughs) I just love Conan. Well, let's get to today's episode. Greg is great. We talked over Zoom and his Emmy was over his right shoulder the whole time, which was pretty cool to see. I haven't seen one that close in real life. You know what I mean? Like I've seen them on a screen before, but I wasn't talking to the person who had it. (laughs) So that was surreal, but cool. And there's also some weird audio you'll notice, but you'll get past that and you're going to want to because he offers so much sound advice in this interview. He laid it all out in such a practical way. Definitely stay till the end because he breaks down finding your comedic voice in the most clear way I have ever heard. Let's just get right to it. Here's my chat with Greg Iwinski. Is that poster over your right shoulder Conan's quote from his last Tonight Show? Yep. Okay, there you go. That, if you want the level of obsessed with late night that I am, you just got it right there. <laughs> and you know the my level of, by seeing it, you know yeah, my level that's, of that's great. obsession. Greg, it's really great to talk to you. I've heard about you for so long now, and I was like, oh, I've got to get this guy on the, on the podcast. You were actually working at Late Show when I first heard about you, and someone you kind of mentored mentioned and, you. Oh, it's, it's terrifying to know that people mention me. I, I, I'm a <laughs> relatively all... boring person. So. <laughs> well, it was all about how helpful and kind and talented you are. So it was good That's stuff. Very kind. Very kind. <laughs> very nice of you to say that. Or, and of them to say that. I appreciate it. <laughs> yeah, I, sure. I appreciate that. I have done my research, uh, my crack research here. And I know places you've worked. But what I don't know 
is where you are from, I would maybe guess potentially Chicago, because I know you did IO and Second City there, but are you from Chicago? Where are you from originally? Uh, no, I am, uh, I am, I claim so many places, but I was born in Kansas City, but a week into living there, I was adopted. I grew up, and then I grew up in what I consider my hometown of uh, Phoenix, Arizona, the Phoenix okay. metro area in Arizona. I grew up there first 20 or so years there, came back for a couple of years later. So I've spent um, the majority, more than 50% of my life in, in the Phoenix area. Okay. And that's where I'm from. Yeah. Okay. And you are hardworking comedy writer. I know you put a lot of work in and have put a lot of hours into that. And I know that you did do stand up. You were even touring several years ago before the late night gigs. Is that when comedy started for you or did you start out young? Did you start out in college? When did that get into the mix? Um, well, first, let me say, in case anybody knows me, this listening to this is like my, the, any of the touring stuff I did was, was not in any way comparable to like a real touring stand up. It was like places that I could do gigs that I had friends. Oh, yeah. More than yeah, like yeah, yeah. doing some real uh, stuff. But I, I started, um, I was always into writing, always into trying to be funny, trying to make people laugh, you know, uh, most of my life. And then uh, I grew up as a homeschooled kid. So a lot of room for imagination, a lot of time for imagination, a lot of exploration of the wilderness and just getting out there and thinking and dreaming and imagining so that, you know, you really got to have that time to yourself to tell stories and, and think about stories. And then I, I went to college. I came out of college, got a job, was working at a company in my hometown and eventually got to a point where I thought like, I think I want to do something different. And I think I might want to try comedy. So I went to Chicago for a week or two weeks, did the Iowa and Second City intensives. You know, they have those like summer programs where it's like, come here for a week and see what it would be like. Mm -hmm. Went for a week, liked it. And then um, the next spring I moved. Uh, so it's spring of 2011. I moved to Chicago, didn't know anybody, didn't know anyone in Chicago, didn't know anybody in Second City, had an uncle in the suburbs who I crashed with for a little bit, but um, moved there to start comedy to see what I could do. And then from there, that's where it kind of took off in terms of finding other people that loved the same kind of comedy as me, doing as much stuff as we could. And I mean, Chicago, everything is so different now with the advent of the internet and being able to do internet comedy, but especially back then, back then being only 10 years ago, <laughs> Chicago had the benefit of being a place where you could, from the second you woke up to the second you passed out, be around people who also were only thinking about comedy, only thinking about our sketch show, only thinking about our improv show. What do we do? What form can we do? How can we do that? What was, what about last night? Can we do better? And just over and over and over again, this, this thought of like, all we do is comedy. It's our whole life. You get a lot of reps in that way. Right. You know, and, and also you meet a lot of people. I mean, I will say that the, the black comedy community in Chicago's improv scene was so small that most of those people are friends and almost all of them are writing television or are on television right now. Because right. you have, you know, Patrick Rowland and Namby right. uh, and Shantira who are all at Amber Ruffin show. And you have Chris Redd who's on SNL. You have Dwayne Perkins at Brooklyn Nine-Nine and you've got me, you've got Ali Barwell at Last Week Tonight. 
I mean, like you've got like all of the people who we knew who were black are all, we all got out and did it because we were all these comedy nuts sitting there just being like, this is all we do. This is all we do. All we do is comedy all the time. So I really got my comedy start to start in Chicago, although I started like life and everything in, in Phoenix. Chicago is what I think of as my comedy hometown. Yeah. You know, things have changed a lot because of the internet. And some of that is really great because it's it's so much easier for people to put out comedy that they've thought up and also even take classes. They don't have to live in Chicago now to take a second city sketch writing class. Is, is there a benefit to that when there's someone who's try wants to have a career like you and want to do comedy all the time so they can grind it out would the way things are now still benefit them in the same way your experience did or is it just so different and that it's sort of like who knows i would say that i think um the the goal if it's gonna be your thing and i and, and one thing that people told me all the time was that that trope you hear which is if there's anything else you want to do do that instead if there's anything else you want to do do it and i would say if there's anything else you can easily do instead that you like a lot then do that but if but if everything's going to be a grind do the grind you love um but part of but part of what makes that easier is the sense of community and that's really what you're getting living in new york or chicago or la it's not just I can take this class. It's not just I can get access to this teacher or I can see a big famous show. It's that on a Wednesday night at nine o'clock, I can go see my friend's show and then I can talk to them about the show after the show. And then I have a show at 11 and they come to my show and they talk to me about my show and I go to bed and I get up and we're, and I'm getting ready for the other. And it becomes your everyone you know in your community is pushing each other to be better you can get a community on the internet and that that uh, that's very valid but there there is a tangible thing of like when there's a difference between getting your degree online and getting your degree living in the dorms yeah because yeah of, you know and so there is a way to still live in the dorm. i think about the last big comedy house i lived in it was this house on north kenmore a couple houses north of wrigley field and it's like there were three improv girls who moved out and they had a big crazy party, which was a weird situation to be going to a party of an apartment you're moving into, watching everybody trash it, being like, oh, we're going to have to clean this up. But they, three of them moved out. Three of us improv guys moved in. We took over and it was bits all day, of, you know, stuff on the walls. We had a phone that literally was not connected to anything. It was an old analog phone that only existed for bits. So that in a conversation, you could pick it up and pretend to be on the phone. You know, we had an inflatable whale. We pretended it was our roommate. Like it was, it was, you were always being pushed to, you had to always be on to be that person. And that's the thing that I think you can't get unless you're in it is like that it becomes, it's like your life and not everybody can do that. And like, I was very lucky in that I was, I was in my mid twenties. I had no kids. I was not married. I like, I, you know, like I made just enough to pay off my student loans kind of and to like pay rent. And like, I was, I had two other jobs so but i was you know it wasn't like my parents paid for me kind of that stereotypical path into comedy it's like i was still working i was sold all out to do it and i was around other people who had sold all out and i think that that is an immeasurable benefit to your comedy yeah i always think before we left chicago i had this incredible teacher john hildreth um 
really, really great improv teacher. Also a black man. So it was a great inspiration to me to be like, he had been in it way before me, you know, when Second City was even whiter and had come through it. And so his experiences were helpful. But he said, he said, you know, every two months, I see cars full of people who have sold everything they have and moved to Chicago and think that they're going to be Tina Fey. And none of them ever are, but they think they're going to be. And so it's important to understand why you're doing this and what your goals are and, and when you're going to get out. So for me, that became a thing as well as realizing like the lobby of Second City is full of people who are kind of interested in comedy. But the people who you see there at one in the morning still working on sketches, those people have jobs now. And so like the, the higher you put yourself up on that little tiny pyramid of people who are more and more dedicated, the better. You know, like Chris Redd is killing it. He is incredible. He is on SNL. He's doing other stuff. But I can tell you this, every time I was in Second City, every day he was there and he was working. Mm-hmm. You know, and so it's it's whether it's moving somewhere, getting into an internet community, starting your own improv troupe in your hometown, it's about people who are working hard and making it their thing. Yes. And I think what you're kind of describing here is an iron sharpening iron thing too. If you're around people, you're able to talk to them about their show, then they can sit and watch your show and talk to you about your show. And it's all happening in real time. There is something that's beneficial to that than posting something that you did alone and someone just like liking it or saying fire in the comments. Like they're not, you're not able to talk about what worked, what didn't work, why. That stuff doesn't necessarily happen so much with the internet age and it's hopefully coming back. I mean, my theater finally reopened, but you know, we had this three month or or couple month delay but i'm i'm wondering how people right now can do what you're describing and and i think it is getting in a house together being friends and making it a point to see each other and work on things regardless of what it is and talk about it yeah it's um it's really what situation for you is going to get you the most hours the most time the most reps the most stuff because it's easy, especially online. There's a lot of affirmation. There's a lot of support. There's a lot of those things. But that is never the same as sitting down and like writing three sketches. It's never the same as sitting down and writing out mono jokes. You know, it's the stuff that it, it sounds very, I always compare late night writing to the NBA, but it's like nobody sees you in the gym. Nobody sees you writing 50 monologue jokes a week so that you are, so that your packet is ready or so that you are sharp on writing them. You know, those are the parts where having people that push you that and push you on that in your real life, not just on your phone, is is incredibly helpful. I want to hear more about this comparison <laughs> to the NBA. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, I look, I it's I don't know if it's because I'm one of the few black late night writers or because I just am a basket just obsessed with basketball. But um <laughs> I think about it in the way that like late night TV is a tiny group of people on a select number of teams doing something that's very, very high profile. Um, obviously way more people watch the NBA than watch late night. So I'm not comparing it in that level of popularity, but it's like, you can win a championship. You can, win an, you can get an Emmy. Like you can, uh, you know, like you can get personal accolades and you can, and you're on contracts with different teams and you're switching teams when you're a free agent, you know, 
and they run different offenses. So like, yes, it's all the same kind of comedy, but some people are playing pick and roll. Some people are playing like swinging it for three, some, you know, so you're adjusting to different styles. Sometimes you get brought in on a short-term contract to just be like that dude on a 10 day to just get a job done. Sometimes you're the star of the team. Um, you have to learn team chemistry and room chemistry uh, and work with people who are very different or might be coming in and out, you know, like you have coaches and GMs who have different goals for you. All of that to me relates to basketball in the same way that it's like, um, there are people who are in it who are really, really talented and can coast on talent. And there's people who have to grind it out all the time and, and people all the way in between. But it is mm -hmm. in me, to me, incredibly similar to the league in that, um, and as I was adjusting to working in it, it was very grounding for me personally to keep relating it to that. So I had some way of understanding the experience I was going through. Oh, that's, that's a really apropos <laughs> description, uh, quite <laughs> frankly. I know I've, uh, Lauren Michaels has referred to uh, people talking about SNL the way people talk about sports. And, and there is, there are, it makes a lot of sense. Um, uh, with that show because there are people who will say like oh they're not as good as they used to be and then it's like well, what about all these star players and uh the championships they've had since that first first ever cast you know yeah. it's sort of like you know it, it does get to sound just like the way people talk about <laughs> talk about some professional team um you know you mentioned there also about like the difference in you know, how someone runs an offense and you are sort of, you have to have seen a difference going from late show to last week tonight, because for, they both might have a lot of political uh, material uh, or political comedy. One is nightly and the other is weekly and seasonal at that. So there is a, it's gotta be a completely different way that you go about doing that gig. Oh yeah. I mean, I think that if we are being totally fair, and I think that even at an award show level, specifically with the Emmys and Writers Guild Awards, a weekly show and a, a five times a week show are not the same show, and they're not the same sport. It's 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 like European basketball and NBA basketball. It's like they look very similar, but there are some fundamental difference. I mean, it might even be farther apart. That it might be like you know, it might yeah i don't know it might be like that like weird european handball where you like have to jump from the three-point line and throw it but they're they, they they are not the same thing because um one of them is like putting out a new single every night and one is dropping an album every week and um they're both good and they're both valid forms of late night television but they aren't doing the same thing and to compare them to each other is impossible i mean yeah. you're at uh, you're at any of those late shows you're doing over 250 episodes a year I mean, so the number of minutes of TV you're producing, uh, over 250 hours of TV a year. But if you have a show that does 30 half hours a year, I mean, that's, that's, that's a, it's such a small amount of TV. It's like, it's like how British TV shows, it's like, wow, this, the, the original Office was so good. And you're like, yeah, it was a half a season of TV. It didn't yeah. even have time to get bad. So <laughs> how can you compare that to a show that has to do 26 a year for five years? So. Right. I don't That's think exactly what I've said. Yeah. yeah. They're not the same art form at all. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Is there a difference in how many are on the writing staff? Are you able to say? I would say mo most staffs across the board are in the 
10 to 14 range, both daily and weekly are both around that range. That just kind of becomes a writer's room where you have enough writers to do everything you need to do. Mm-hmm. I think some of the shows are smaller, maybe you can get down to eight or something like that. But yeah, it's, it's generally, you don't see more than 14 unless you're like at SNL was kind of a big free radical on that chart because they have 20. Yeah. They're doing something very different. So. Of course. Yeah. Like talk about a different sport and, and <laughs> different yeah. art form there because yeah. it's, it's, that's, it's an hour and a half a, a week, but you know, for three weeks and then off for a couple of weeks and, and however many a year, but gosh, that's, uh, it's so many moving parts that there have to be so many people there uh, on yeah. the production and writing side sides of things. Yeah. Wild. It's uh, <laughs> it's very, I think there's nothing like it. And that's why people love watching it well, because it's unique. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Also, when it comes to differences, and I don't know how much of this you can mention, but for a show like Late Show, my understanding is the shows will hire monologue writers, and then there are other writers, but I'm never, it's, it's always been sort of, not mysterious, but just sort of unclear what the other writers specifically yeah. do or are there different departments or is it just different from show to show what happens with all these shows is that like if you're obsessed with finding out who's writing and who's on the writing staff and then like awards come out or credits come out and you're like well there's six extra writers who are these people uh-huh. it's that like it's that you know a script is not finished by the staff writers it has to go to a head writer and or a supervising writer and maybe a showrunner and then the host and all these people who they're also helping to rewrite it as it moves up the chain. So they all are listed as writers because they're doing writing. So that that's what, so the staff list is one list, but then as it goes up, there's so many other people helping to polish it and to, to write their own pieces that you end up with a list that's a little bit bigger. So there isn't like a desk piece writer. There's just the writing staff and everyone's kind of contributing to that. Yeah, and I think every show is different because mm-hmm. at Seth, and this is not talking out of school, I mean, Sal's make, made this very public, but like at Seth, A Closer Look is written by Sal Gentile, mm-hmm. who is a great, he's great, he's a great guy, but like he's the guy who does Closer Looks. Okay, cool. That's like there's articles where he talks about doing that, but that's not, and other shows, no. I mean, you're, some shows have a, a bucket of staff writer across the board who write everything that's needed to be written. And some shows have a sketch team and a monologue team, and they'll split those two up, or they have like a cold open team and a monologue team. So each show is kind of different based off what they need. And some are some are hiring you to do a specific thing. And then some, I think, just go, you can write, so we'll just throw you at whatever we need. Oh, cool. So that's the reason why if someone wants to get a gig like that, that's why they should sit and write 50 monologue jokes and also write a bunch of sketches so that they can hone all of those skills because they can get a job where they need to do it all. Well, also, I think the the importance of monologue jokes to me is that monologue jokes are about volume and about speed and about sharp clarity. Like, you know, that's the number one thing when you're doing, especially when when you're looking at people's packets or you're doing a class on monologue writing is it's 40% too long. This word can go, this phrase can go, cut this out. We know who this person's title is. We don't need to say it. This and, this phrase, all cut, 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 cut. It should be as few words as possible. Always, always, always. Cut everything down. And so by making yourself do them over and over, you're not just learning to write monologue jokes. You're learning to write a lot of jokes very quickly without criticizing yourself or writer's blocking. 
And that's what's important about that is that whether you are going to go write monologue jokes for a show that has monologue jokes, or you're going to put a bunch of jokes into a long essay piece, or you're going to go into a sitcom and be the punch-up joke person who then throws a bunch of jokes into a script. If you have the skill of you can sit down and they can go, hey, can you get us 20 jokes? And you go, yeah, obviously. That is a skill that not everyone has. And so a lot of other writers who are skilled at other very important things can't all sit down and just be like, you can give me any sentence and I'll go write you 10 jokes, whatever. So if you can give yourself that skill and get to that point where you're like, yes, just pull up any Yahoo news story, I'll write you 10 jokes. And it's not a stressful thing. And it's not a, it's not work. I mean, it's work, but it's not this panicky, like, how am I going to write jokes then you're starting to build the skill one of the biggest skills of late night writing which is about your interior clock and you know been doing it for five years and i live in it and i love it and whatever but you get soaked into it in a way that you only sometimes when you talk to people who aren't doing late night or you do other stuff do you realize oh i'm insane because someone will sit down and be like okay we need two and a half minutes on this news story at lunchtime it's the morning now are you good and you're like yeah that's fine. And then you aren't thinking it's a lot to do. You're thinking, okay, which pieces am I using? What clips am I using? I'm going to put them in this way. This is the button's fine. But you're just starting to already build. Whereas if you had been me 10 years ago and it had been like, yeah, you have to write two and a half minutes of television by lunchtime, I would have been like, ah, and like freaked out because it's, it's opposing. But you, so you have to build that part into yourself where it's like, oh, yeah, that's whatever. And that's what doing those monologue jokes does too is that you're like, when you sit down, I used to sit down on a Friday night and go, I'm going to write, I'm going to write 50 monologue jokes. And so my Friday night before I did anything fun was writing 50 monologue jokes. So when you put that pressure on yourself earlier, then when it comes later and it's like, because if you were at Conan or any of those shows, those people were writing 50 to hundred monologue jokes a day. A day. Every yeah. Day. Yeah. And so that's like, that can't be intimidating. It has to be like, okay. Yeah. It's it, because it needs to become like shooting free throws. Right. Like I'm gonna sit, I'm gonna sit in the gym until I hit ten free throws in a row. Okay. Boom. And every day you're putting up a hundred free throws or whatever. Then when you need to shoot free throws on a game, you're like, yeah, uh, this is automatic. And you're right. trying to build that into yourself so that that part is automatic. Then you can put your focus into the other parts, which is you know what is my voice, what is the host voice, what are the jokes that will get past the sensors, what are like all of these other factors you have to bring in. You can put your brain on them, and the muscle of going, can I write jokes? Is like you never for a second are going. Can I write jokes? Yeah, that's brilliant. You mentioned being able to also write the jokes without critiquing yourself or criticizing yourself. Self-criticism is a, such a killer because it does, like just hearing you talk, I was like, oh, I started too late. Oh, I'll never be good enough. Uh, you know, like that's just hearing mm -hmm. that almost made me go, well, then I guess I suck. <laughs> you know, like how did someone get past that when they're trying to sit down and write or they they have written something and they're like oh this isn't good enough i stink well listen i mean i think there's been a lot of talk about this from ira glass to other people which is like knowing that you're bad is a sign of being good because when you go see a really bad sketch show or really bad stand-up or really bad improv they come off the stage and they're like that was great and you're like oh you're my friend so i just will say nothing but the person who know, but the person who comes off or writes a thing and goes, this was wrong. I need to fix this and this and this and this, and then can go and fix it the next time. That person is getting better. 
So it's not to encourage a bunch of self-defeating critical talk where you where you hit yourself. It's going, is my self-criticism constructive to my work? Is the thing that sucks not me? I don't suck. This script does suck. And when I rewrite it, it will suck less. And when I rewrite it again, it will suck less. And the 50 jokes I wrote next week will suck less. You know, so three of those 50 jokes will be good. Well, I have three good jokes. If I do that for a month, I have 12 good jokes. That's half of the packet. If I do that for three months, I got 36 good jokes. If I do that for a year, I have over 120 good jokes. That's pages and pages of jokes. So it's like going, it doesn't, I know I'm bad at this. It doesn't matter. I'm still doing it. When we talk about that pyramid of like, the number of people who stop there is huge. If you, if the only difference between you and a person who dreams of doing it is that you keep doing it. You have moved yourself up a huge chunk of the people who are trying. Also really brilliant advice. And it reminds me of, of this is a very random poll, but it reminds me of something I heard Don Henley say in the 90s in an interview about learning to write from Glenn Fry. Don Henley, I guess, was being maybe a little too precious about his writing and, and, and didn't even want to commit to saying something if it wasn't polished enough. But he was saying Glenn Fry got him out of that because Glenn Fry would just throw out a line, even if it's no good, he's got something down now. And then he would just keep going and then they would just hack at it later and rewrite it later. But at least yeah. they have it down. Like if if you're sitting there with the with three chords and and you have no lines because you're too afraid to write the lines down, then you don't have a song yet. But if you at least say like, okay, here's a verse, here's a chorus, here's another verse, and I already have the chorus, and you're like, well, all the lyrics suck. It's like, yeah, but I have the structure. Exactly, because you think of you, when people talk about writing pilots all the time, it's. Well, I don't have a pilot yet. It hasn't, no. You know how much better it is to have a bad pilot than have no pilot? Because mm. a bad pilot, you can send to somebody and get notes and then you can fix it and then you can do a table read and you can get the language better and you can tweak it and you can think about the pieces and you can tell yourself the story over and over and fix it and fix it and fix it. But if you don't have one because you're waiting to write the perfect one, you there's no difference between you and a person in Starbucks who says that they want to be a screenwriter. Like, get the thing done the benefit of late night is you do not have time to be precious especially like on a daily show the show tapes at 5 30. it doesn't matter what you think about the joke it has to be done and it has to be there and if it's bad we'll do another one tomorrow oh wow but we don't have we don't have time we want to put the you want to put the best show out and you want to put up something you're proud of obviously you're not just throwing out jokes you don't think are good but there's a point where you go where you know lauren well, it doesn't go on because it's ready. It goes on. Because it's 11.30 on Saturday night, right? Yeah, like, but that's, that's true with late night where you're like, there is a pencils down moment. And the goal is mm. to, it, you will never feel like it's good enough. Mm. If, it doesn't matter how much time you have. You can keep tweaking, keep punching up, keep getting alts, keep, you can keep doing that. It's not just being precious about what gets cut because 90% of what you write as a late night writer gets thrown in the trash and you have to just be absolutely fine with that. It's also being fine with, you're going to run out of time and you're gonna go, okay, we're out of time. Here you go. And that's yeah. what I, it's the thing I love about late night is that it, it is impossible to be precious. You have to just go, yeah, fine, boom. I wrote a really good sketch. I believe, this is hypothetical. But I wrote a really good sketch that I believed in, that, ever, that we thought were good, blah, blah, blah. There was a costume came in late, we couldn't do it. It got cut, it never happened, boom. 
oh well tomorrow i'll write something else tomorrow i'll do something else like you just have to be able to move yourself on as right. opposed to if you're writing a movie or something where you have all this time to worry about it. interesting so writing monologue jokes as a practice as as a skill honing practice is also good in regard to that because you don't have the time to hone it when, on the day that you're working. You you have to already be able to get the idea out quickly. Yeah, and you're still and 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 that's not to say that you're not punching something up or going through it. I mean, you're getting a draft down, and then mm-hmm. whether it's a, a monologue chunk or it's a, a larger piece or it's a monologue joke, you're getting it down, and then you're going, okay, I'm going to say it out loud. I'm going to see what the mouthfeel is. Does it sound like the host would say it? Is the vocabulary right? Is the pacing right? Do I need to flip words around so we find like you're still going back and refining it, but you're also doing it knowing it's like, well, I you know I have two hours, like so. You know, you don't have time to really second guess yourself. You have to trust your instincts and put out the best stuff that you can. This is the most fun I've heard someone describe this process because sometimes I've seen, as we've established, uh, uh, I'm a comedy nerd, and I've seen a Paley Center interview with late night writers when they looked miserable talking about (laughs) comedy. And talking about writing for a late night show and how like much work it is and how hard it is. They don't make it sound like it's fun, but you make it sound like, <laughs> oh, yes, it's the same stuff that I've heard other writers say. But at the same time, you're saying, and that's what's fun about it. That's what's exciting. Yeah. It's, well, I would say that, like, one, they don't invite me to the Paley. That's, I'm not a person going to Paley Center. <laughs> <laughs> they should. But, um, I mean, I think about, I think all the time, I would like to host a late night show a traditional late night show uh, it's a goal that i've explicitly had out loud my whole career um mm-hmm. i want to do it i think i can do it i believe i can i i i want to have a chance um but when i think about that it's like i want everyone in that room to be happy that they're coming to work because we get to do something that's so stupid and i think that's that's a you know it's a benefit of a thing i learned at the late show um you know was the idea that stupid is a positive attribute. Like when a joke is so good that it's like, that is so like, that it can be stupid in a good way. And the idea yeah. that, that I think that there, look, it is hard. And especially when you're doing like news stuff and all that, like it's hard and it takes, it does take a lot of work. It is incredibly stressful to put yourself on that clock, burns you out in a way that you don't really, you're doing it. And then you get, at the end of the day, you're like, oh no, my brain, I've been holding the gas pedal down on my brain all day. Now I just have to sit. So like, there obviously are costs and it takes work and it's hard and the hours can be crazy. And, you know, like it is a taxing, hard, quote unquote, creative job. But the thing that I try to never lose sight of is like, I'm getting paid to write silly things for a silly man to say on a TV box. And at the end of the day, I get to turn on my TV and go, that guy said a thing that I said he should say. And that's so cool. And like, I think part of it is that there are, you know, this is a vague generalization, but they talk about, you know, in the old SNL days, the Harvard guys, the Chicago guys, which is real, but it's really a mask for, are you an upper class person who comes from status and wealth? And the reason you're a writer is that you were so rich and safe and successful that your rich parents got you into a nice college where you studied writing because that was a thing to do. And then you got an internship and you kind of, you fell into writing because it was a fun, humorous thing to do. Or are you like a scrappy blue collar drunk idiot who's a comedian and because you're a good comedian, you can write comedy. And both of those schools have generated incredibly talented comedians, but I gravitated to the 
trashy blue collar dirtbag one mm-hmm. where you find many more people of color than the status one for some reason oh i wonder why <laughs> yeah i don't know uh, but, like, but that so like that's where i come from and in that i think there is a there is a gratitude in that that you don't find in all late night writers but a gratitude and like can you believe we made it and we get to do this we get to write dumb jokes because they're not doing anything like i i wrote you know how many trump jokes i've written they didn't do anything he's still around he's still right. alive like he like he didn't lose in 2016 like it doesn't right. do anything i can't turn to my kids and be like i brought down a tyrant like i didn't <laughs> i made a bunch of jokes about his dumpy butt like and that was whatever it gave well yeah and that's one of the things and i've said this before but People were saying, oh, if Jon Stewart hadn't left The Daily Show, Hillary would have won. And I always say Jon Stewart was hosting The Daily Show when W. Bush won twice. Yeah. I mean, and if you ask John or you ask Stephen or you ask these people, none of them are saying if I was on TV. Exactly. And it's it's this thing of like Charlie Chaplin was parodying Hitler. It didn't stop him. It didn't stop anything. Right. Comedy. And that's what there's this mistake with political comedy that has been really embraced by boomers, which is this belief that it's activism. If I sit at home in my suburban house where I only know white people, but I'm a very proud in this house, we believe in my front yard sign, white liberal. If I share a video of someone saying Trump sucks, then I've done something, I've made a difference. When in reality, it's like, it's not supposed to be that. It's supposed to be catharsis. Because let's right. take it even out of even out of this political area. What is why is late night on right after the news? Because what happens is the news is scary, and then a TV man comes on and he goes, "It's not that scary. It's kind of silly." And then you can go to sleep nicely instead of being scared by the news. That is right. at its core why this genre of television exists. And so it's not about feeling like you're somehow changing the news. It's letting you cope with it. That's a very good distinction. I would say I think it's more than boomers who have taken that. Yes, as yes, yes. I, just mean, I would say on Twitter, that is who you see as the overwhelming response are a lot of accounts of like, People, but I, even the there, even there, I feel like I see a lot of millennials kind of push the punch up, not down, so there can be an impact. And I always say, I don't know that it's really going to have that impact because I've never seen that impact, you know? Yeah, I think that was something that we got very, you know, like there, there's frustration at that at some level among late night writers who want to make a difference. I, there was an episode even of last week tonight where we broke from the form of just talking about the news and talked about giving black people a moment of joy and relief, talked about silly things. But that piece ended with John saying, go in the streets and protest. Because that's the thing that's actually gonna make a change. Not not watching the show, not retweeting any late night show, not doing any of that. Like none of that is going to make a difference. It's there to make you feel better. And it's good and okay. There's TV designed to make you feel better. Right. But feeling better and changing anything are not the same. 100% agree. And I, and I read, or no, I think I heard an interview with Stephen Colbert where he was saying doing Colbert Report, he was not trying to have a political impact. I think he was saying it to Mark Maron. He was saying like that, I, I was making comedy. <laughs> yes. That was what I was trying to do. Yeah. I think people have, have moved 
in the same way that a lot of journalists have kind of made money off of moving from being reporters, objective reporters, to becoming crusaders. Mm-hmm. There's a push for comedians to do that too. Yeah. And I'll say that like, that's not what comedians signed up for. Mm-hmm. I mean, we, you would usually what a comedian signed up for was, I don't want to have a real job. I want to say dumb things and you didn't <laughs> give me money. And if you will, that's great. I mean, the only comedian that I know that's changing the world is Vladimir Zelensky, right? Who was a stand-up comedian, and now he's leading a, a war against invaders in his own country. Yeah. That's a comedian who's changing the world and doing something. Absolutely, we we are not doing that. Yeah, right. I, I remember when that Robin Williams movie came out, where he ran for president. And then I kind of almost won and then he backed out or something. And that, I feel like that movie was sort of inspired by people saying John Stewart and Stephen Colbert should run. Yeah. And the end was sort of like, yeah, no, that shouldn't happen. <laughs> right. <laughs> but then yeah. someone did it in Ukraine and it's inspiring, not from a like a, a comedian making a difference, but just a person saying, I'm going to make a difference because I see something wrong here and I want to do, I want to actually do something. Yes. That's, that's, my heart goes out to all of them. Yes. And that's, for me, that's where I think about, I love late night television. I'm obsessed with it. But in thinking about what it's for and what it can do, it's that at its core, it provides catharsis. Right. And the question is, who is it providing that to and about what? And so, right. You right. Know? And so like sometimes that's all of America is scared or these people are or we're scared by this thing or what's what's freaking us out or those things. I grew up in an era of late night where it was much less pointed at current events and more just like a systemic kind of like grander fears. Like we were talking about like the blue collar, white collar thing, like the you know, the letterman stuff is is so clearly like I'm a dork from Indiana and the big wigs at NBC are coming for me and those kinds of societal fears and things of like they don't want me to have a show and they think that you know they're kicking us off and we're the weirdos in the corner and like those things which are also big societal things so i think you're always helping somebody feel seen and be able to laugh and not be scared but it's just each show is deciding what is that thing going to be i mean even even if we talk about like concern i mean there's not much conservative comedy but talk about gutfeld he has a late night show a lot of people watch it but the thing is is they are scared that these non-factual mythical liberals are going to come make their kids be trans and like destroy, make America socialist and they have to all kiss AOC or some like, you know, whatever they're all afraid of, but right. like, they're afraid and he's letting them laugh at a thing they're afraid of. And that's, so, so it doesn't matter what side or anywhere it is. That's really what we're trying to do. Yeah. It's, you know, it's an interesting place we're in now because you mentioned gut build and it's like the little clips I've seen. I'm like, but that's not funny. And maybe it's just because I'm I'm not afraid of the thing he's trying to get people to laugh at, but also it's just like I don't know. It feels like weak comedy. Yeah. Well, also he's not. He's not. He has two staffs of writers who he has alternate part time days, so they don't have to go guild, and he doesn't have to pay them actual comedy writer rates. So I think his talent pool is maybe a little bit smaller than an average late night show. Not only yeah. because people would find it morally reprehensible, but also he has to find people who are willing to get paid halftime to write those jokes yeah yeah but also it's like to laugh at something is to be scared of it which is to be vulnerable and i think his point of view and the point of view of maybe those shows is coming from a place the same as bill maher comes from a place of smug higher status 
And that's why neither Gutfeld and Bill Maher both aren't funny. And they both probably say the N word all the time when the cameras come off. Yeah. Because they're the kind of smug guys who they're laughing down. They're not just mm-hmm. punching down. They're like, they're telling you to be scared of a thing that they think is beneath them. Right. That, that, that rings hollow. And then you don't laugh at it unless you're also one of those people. Absolutely. It's, it's not a sacred cow if it's not, you know, if it's this thing that everyone is dealing with and trying and struggling with, that's not a sacred cow. It's just like their life. Yeah. It's not an authority figure that <laughs> they can point up to and say like, you suck. <laughs> it's their everyday life. Yeah. Yeah. Somewhat shifting gears here. What is one of the most fun experiences that you can remember working on one of the shows? Like what's something that, that sticks out? Oh man, there were a lot. I mean, that's one of the benefits of, of late show and of all those five night week shows is you get to do so many different things every day. Mm. Um, but I would say, yeah, there were a lot of fun guest things, you know, like having somebody come in who's very famous and then having them say one or two of your jokes always feels really good. Like you're like, yeah, you said my joke. That's cool. <laughs> but, I, but I think the live shows, uh, doing live television is incredible. You know, we at, at Late Show, we did live State of the Union, live election nights, live debates. And I, I mean, I love making TV, but there's something so different about sitting in a room, all watching the news happen, writing about it. So you have even less time, right, to be precious. Like, it's like, mm-hmm. yeah. it's like we're going right now. So mm-hmm. in your head, you have to filter even more because you're like, my first draft has to really be a third draft in my head. Like, you're like, I got to only throughout the good ones but when you're all sitting there and then you're sitting there with like a host who's in hair and makeup and he's like okay see ya and he walks down and a minute and a half later you're like he's on tv he's on like regular <laughs> t- not even the studio monitor he's on the re- the news ended and then the tv came on and that's where we are and, that's- and so it was wild because like i lived close to the studio at that point too so there were some live shows where we would write the monologue news ends at 11 30 the show comes on, I watch the monologue, I walk home, I get home before the show's over, and I watch the end of the show at my house. And I'm like, I just made that thing that's on TV. I just work. At the end of that, my name is going to be on the end. We made that. We just all made that thing. We all, we all made a show. And now the show's on the TV. And that, like, I think that is the part that, that I hope never gets old for people. But for me, live television is a, it is like, I've never, I don't do drugs, but like, it's like cocaine. It's like, I imagine how cocaine is because you're just like, because you have no time, no room for error, no anything. And then you make it. And then you're like, the show's happening live. So you're like, if he messes up, there's, he just messes up. And so you're just like watching it like, and then when it, when it works, you're just like, we did it. Like, you feel like you like, you feel like you tricked people. You're just like, we make TV out of nothing. We just made this. We just made it right now. We didn't, we didn't have any prep time at that feels so good but also you go home and you're like i'm gonna sleep for 12 hours now so it's like <laughs> for sure yeah, yeah. yeah so it's, a, it's an exciting but that's the thing that it's like oh it's so fun i mean i was not doing it every week like snl we were doing it a couple times a year but yeah live shows are they're a thrill they're so it's so fun because it's it's just it's it's even more immediate gratification is it as tiring working on a show like you were mentioning the differences between late show and last week tonight being so different that it's not even the same art form so do you get more time to sleep <laughs> like, like do you even get more time to hone 
at last week tonight than you did at late show. Yeah. I think any show that, that is that fewer episodes, like everything will have a little more time to polish and work on, you know, but I think that in, in both, there's kind of a thing that coming into late night, you don't realize, which is like, there are two modes. One mode is we need this from you right now. You got to go write it right now. And then you're like, okay, here I go. And then there's like you going, what am I doing? Do they need me to do? I've been sitting at my desk for an hour. Nothing's happening. We're all just kind of like throwing a basketball around. Like do, should we be doing something? And other things are happening because a TV show isn't just about the writers and it isn't just about you. There's many moving parts. So when some other things are happening, you get to a point where it's like, yeah, we need you guys to just sit and be quiet for two hours. And you're like, I feel like I should be doing something. There's nothing to do. I don't know. And so like, you know, you, you get creative, you kind of, maybe you write your own monologue chunk to, to throw there or come up with a sketch idea, or you, you know, you think about how to like do something else and you try to be contributive and, and creative. But with all shows, so I think with both shows and both pacings, you're still in a situation where there are moments that are grueling and there are moments that are like, oh, okay, I guess, uh, I guess I'm here. I'm here if you need me. You know, it, it's very, it's, it's like, this. it's not in any way as important, but it's like an army medic. When they need you, they really need you. When they don't right. need you, you're just waiting around until they need you. <laughs> you know and not every show is like that and not not every because i think there are some traditional monologue shows where it's more like you're writing monologue jokes all day they're done you're doing a rehearsal you're done like but i think more of the chunk shows and the ones with longer scripts the ones that are more changing to match the news you're just kind of like okay interesting well you work hard you do the work and that's why you got two emmys oh, i have two no no I have, I have two nominations but i only have one you have one emmy but two nominations okay this this is it oh i've seen it <laughs> oh yeah it's uh it's so it's way heavier than you think i wanted one for a long time because uh so few black people have them mm -hmm. it's like literally it's like i think it's like 12 people 14 people because it's like flip wilson wanda sykes chris rock uh, Trayvon Free, Kevin Avery, Ashley Nicole Black, Allie Barwell, Barthwell, me. Uh, I'm sure I'm forgetting a friend of mine or something, but it's like, it's very small. It's a very Did you small say list. Larry Wilmore? You may have said Larry. Larry Wilmore. He's on there. Yes. He was with, yeah. So, Chris so it's like, it's, you know, it's like, it's very, it's small. It's like mm -hmm. there have been more bachelorette contestants than. <laughs> <laughs> right for sure black then black people write on later shows so mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um that winning emmys for later shows so winning it meant a lot to me i was very happy to do it i'm very proud of it i'm gonna use it for all the leverage i can but yeah it's uh when it got here it was much heavier than i thought so i carried mm -hmm. a rattle that hurt my back because i <laughs> have the body of a comedy writer so like, oh. <laughs> so you were a nominee for late show a yes. winner for last, last week, week tonight. tonight and that yes. was the last emmys Yes. When Conan ran on stage. Yes, yes. <laughs> well, he ran on stage with Late Show, but he, he got acknowledged yeah. by, by John Oliver. Yeah, it was a really weird situation, too, because I was home because the Academy is limited who could go. So mm -hmm. I was watching on TV. But also, it was a there's a really weird situation. And I mean, this is a thing that I hope continues that gets better. But I, was, I watch the Emmys every year or whatever. And I, we were watching it going, no black people have won. That's weird. All these black nominees, no black people have won. And you're sitting there texting your friends like, how many black people? No black people. That's weird. And then the first two black people to win are me and Allie. 
And that is a surreal feeling because then there's like Hollywood reporters and you're like, oh, whoa, that's weird. Like, it's weird to be like, I even tell me personally, it's cool, it matters to me, whatever, but also be like, oh, so few black people want that they know me. Ooh, yeah oh i bet yeah now it's suddenly all eyes on you yeah right and you're like i i wish there were so many black people that it was like a bunch one but you're like i think four black people one or something the whole night and you're like oh man this should not be like this so yeah it was it was very a very weird weird night yeah i guess yeah. so it's sort of uh there was some joy but then there was also some like oh yeah that's it. I think that's that thing about better, like, right? there, there are there are areas where you succeed as a black person where not a lot of people have, and then there is joy there, but there's also sadness where you're like, boy, I wish it wasn't like this in 2021, 2022. Like, I would personally love if I didn't have to be a trailblazer in any field for the rest of my life because so many black people were doing it. You know, I would hate for my kid to have to be the first black anything. Right. I would like, I would love if those things have already been open to them. Already been done. So, right. Yeah. And so it's, it's that kind of thing where it is bittersweet. I mean, I'm very happy to have it. Thank you to the Academy, to the voters. They didn't vote for me. They voted for the show and I was on the mm-hmm. show. So I got like, you know, I'm not trying to pretend it was like a vote for me, but. But you all get one for writing. We all on get the one. Show. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so I'm very happy to, I'm very happy to have it. But in the same way, it's like, I, I do, it's not like I want it. And then people are like, hey, the, there need to be more black winners. I'm like, I can't hear you over the sound of polishing Miami. No, I'm like, <laughs> I agree. There need to be more. There need to be more black winners. For sure. I'm still going to mention in the bio Emmy Award winner. Yes, I am an Emmy Award winner. I will put that in I'm my still... bio for the rest of my life. On my grave, it's going to be like Emmy Award winner, also dad and husband. <laughs> you might be my first uh, interview of an Emmy Award winner post winning an Emmy. Oh. I believe. I believe you might. Well, be. I tell you what, it's it is everything it's cracked up to be. It's a big <laughs> shiny trophy that you look at and you go, I can't believe I have one of those. So that's dope. yeah, it's very weird. It's it's. Um, I, I believe I believe very strongly in enjoying the successes you have because you have no idea what's guaranteed in your career or life or whatever. So like, enjoy the things you have in the same way that it's like, let's say you don't get, you're not hired on a late night show, but you get a show at a theater that people love going to that is a success you know like it's all this increment those successes that happen where it's like enjoy it while you're doing it and then it's not dependent on what happens that's great advice because a lot of people do have their eye for like like you were mentioning earlier uh, every two months someone comes in and they hope they're going to be the next tina fey there are a lot of great successes between where they are in that lobby and tina fey yeah, there is legit work. You are taking care of yourself. You're sending your kids to college sort of success in between that lobby and Tina Fey. And I wish people talked about that more. I, yeah, it's, you just can't make your happiness contingent on someone else's decision. Right. Because ultimately someone else has to decide to hire you. Someone else has to decide, like, are you doing it and you have fun doing it and you like it in the same way that let's go back to basketball. Do you love playing basketball? So you want to play in the NBA, but you love playing basketball and you're going to play basketball all the time. Like you look at the guys who are in and when they're not in the season, they're still playing. They're still, they love doing it. And I think mm-hmm. it's not if you can do anything else to do it, like the advice we've already talked about. It's do you love it so much you do it outside of this path, outside of whatever. If you had a great job doing something like teaching, like math, 
would you still go out two nights a week and do improv and do schedule whatever? Because you love it. Because if you do, then 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 do it. But you got to love yeah. it the whole way because the 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 industry is not fair or nice or whatever. So you just got to love doing it. That's so true. And you know, people who go into the entertainment industry, they always have the story of someone who told them it's hard. It's a, it's a tough job. It's like anything is hard if you want to be successful at it and make a good living. So that's not really the hangup. The hangup is, do you have a capacity to work hard at this specific thing? Because if you don't, then it's, it's not going to work. And it's easier to work hard on something that you enjoy doing. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I could talk to you forever. I'd love to, but it is the end. We, we should create something together and, I'm wondering what is a good, if maybe there's a way to walk someone through how to hone their skills. I know you mentioned writing sketches, writing monologue jokes. What sort of things can someone do, maybe even daily, so that they can continue to hone that? I would say that one thing that goes outside of maybe the technical skills of writing, rewriting, getting shorter is that. Even if you're, whether you're writing for a host or you're, or you're writing for yourself, you need to know your voice. And there are some very clear, obvious things that we talk about with voice that are important, which are like, where do you come from? What do you believe? Who are you? And so like, especially for people of color, LGBTQ people, like anybody outside of a normal white guy, quote unquote, like that's your POV. There's a lot of POV. But more than that, if comedy is the language you speak, it's knowing what your comedic voice is. And that's not, that's, I would say that's not done through going through classes or taking a quiz or anything. It's going through life and both the things that happen in real life and that happen in comedy, you going, that thing tickled me. That thing really stuck with me. That, and then using your comedy brain that you have because you love comedy to go, what is it about that that I love? What is it about that that's similar with these two other? So I'm going to lay these things out that I like. What, what is the same about them? Like, what is the silly thing? Is it like somebody acting weird in a normal situation? Like you think about Tim Robinson and I think you should leave. That's a very specific voice and he knows it and he does it. In that way, Larry David's, even though it feels kind of similar, is different. These ways that you find a voice. Letterman, I mean, I'm obsessed with Letterman, but if you look at Letterman sitting and going like, what is it that he's doing? What is it that I love about that? What do I want to emulate in that? Because that's going to be the extra thing when you sit down and write a sketch and all of us sit down and go, I'm going to write a sketch about a weird airplane interaction in first class. And we all write something and it all has good jokes. All of them have good jokes. All of them have fun characters, all of them, whatever. The thing that will make your packet stand out, that will make you be different, that will make us hire you is that your voice is in that. And I read it or somebody reads it and goes, whoa, I know that person now. I see what their vibe is. I see what they think is funny. I can get their voice. You know, I think there's there's another example of this because I think it, it can be kind of vague language. Is like when you think about go back to the original SNL cast. Think about Dan Aykroyd and Jim Belushi. They're both doing sketch comedy at the same time. Those are very different voices. They're different styles. The way that if if both of them had a sketch about like an encounter at a deli, they would be very different because of their voices. So for you, it's going, yes, what's my point of view? What do I want to talk about? What am I upset about? What things do I want to provide catharsis for? But it's also going, 
am I an absurdist? Am I deconstructionist? Am I doing observations? Do I really like parody and satire? What is it? What are the ways that people act that I think are funny? Because when you lock that down, when you're sitting and writing a sketch and you get stuck, that is always there because you go, oh, well, I know how I'm going to have them act. I know the kind of joke I'm going to put here. It's not just when the infinite plant, when the infinite platter of jokes are in front of you, it can be paralyzing, you know? But when you're like, oh, this is, it's this thing. Like, I know that this, like, the person's going to blurt out the thing that they should never say. Or this, you know, like, I, like, whatever, something, I'm going to do it. I like animal humor. Something's going to break into the thing. Or, you know, we're going to break the form and do something else and comment on it. All of those ways that you're going, oh, okay, this is my, this is part of my deal. That I think is an incredibly productive use of time. And like we said, there are a lot of people in that lobby can sit down and write a bunch of sketches using a basic sketch, five points sketch format and write sketches that have good functional jokes. But when you have TV shows, like this is if you're really trying to get hired in late night, but you, but you have, I've read packets for workshops. I've read packets for shows. Like if you get 500 packets, okay, yes, 300 are bad or whatever, 400 of them are bad. They're formatted wrong. The font is wrong. The jokes aren't right. They're just outright offensive. You know, like whatever, like there's spelling errors. All There's a lot of things you go like, okay, gone, 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 gone. But when you get to the good ones, there's 90 good ones that are functionally good. The jokes are tight. The pacing is tight. It is functionally a sketch. It looks nice. It's professional. It's good. But then there are 10 where you go, only the person who sent me this packet could write this. So if I'm putting a room together, I get that. I don't just get good sketch. I get whatever this person is because all this stuff I'm reading, they're the only person that could have done it this way. That is the thing. And that doesn't come from writing a million sketches. It comes from you treating yourself the same way an NBA player would say, am I a pick and roll guy? Am I a dunker? Am I a three-point shooter? Am I a guy who uses ISO play or a step back or a crossover? What are my moves? So that you start to know yourself as a real artist, because then you can write that packet where you're like dropping it confidently, not just that it's good, but you're like, no one's putting this in. That is the best description of comedic voice that I've ever heard, honestly. And it is so helpful because it gives people permission to not try to predict what this person wants or what the audience wants or what's quote unquote right. It instead says, what is it you think? <laughs> what do you think? Why did you think this was funny? And just write that. Do that well and tight and succinctly. But what is your voice? That's great. Because the thing to remember is audiences are great. They, they pay the bills and they laugh and they give us validation. But they don't know what they want. They know what they like. They did not know, audiences did not know they wanted SNL. They didn't know they wanted I Think You Should Leave. They didn't know that they wanted, you know, Tommy Boy or an Adam Sandler movie. It was, then it showed up and they went, oh my gosh, this is great. And so it's that way of reorienting yourself. So do not chase it. Don't chase the audience. Don't chase the approval of the person doing the packet. You put out something you know is good and then realize that that will attract, that talent will attract people to it. There it is. Greg, thanks so much for being on the podcast. This was great. Thank you so much for having me. Had a great time. I told you this was a great chat. Such solid advice in there. Be sure to follow Greg on Twitter at Gary Jackson. So when you think of Greg Iwinski, think of Gary Jackson. 
Also, he co-hosts a Star Wars podcast for normal people called Yub Nub. Listen on Apple Podcasts and follow them on Twitter at Yub Nub Pod. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at There It Is Pod and subscribe to our YouTube channel at There It Is. Also subscribe to our Comedy Lifestyle newsletter and support us if you can. We have a Patreon and a PayPal. Follow me on Twitter at Jason Farr Jokes and Instagram at Jason Farr Picks. Go to thereitispod.com for newsletter and support info. Links in bio to all the things. Until next time, be good to each other. The music for the theme song was created by Neil Brooks. The rap was written and performed by Nick Acevedo. The logo for There It Is was created by Jeff Prater. The There It Is podcast is produced by Jason Farr. (laughs) 